All right, I gave myself plenty of time to get to today's sermon. I am super excited. Can you tell? I'm super excited. I'm so excited for today's sermon. This is what I did this morning. I woke up early, like super early, like 5.30, came to church, set up all the computers and the screens and whatever, troubleshoot things, and then I went for a run at the bike pack right here. I ran for about uh, almost three miles, not quite three miles because I didn't want to exhaust myself. Um, and then came back home, took a shower, drank some coffee. My friend Buddy teach me about the power of coffee. Uh, and I feel great this morning. And the reason I prepare my, for myself like this is because I'm excited about the message today. We're going to continue our series on gifted. The power of God's gift in our lives. And just in quick review, um, let's read Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, is that up there? Ephesians chapter 4. Kind of want us all read this together. Okay, there you go. Okay, let's all read this together. So Christ himself gave the pro- apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, you remember Pastor Ron talked about the fivefold gifting, right, or the sentient gifts. We call it ascension gifts because Christ, when he ascended on high, gave the gifts to men. Okay, remember the five-finger illustration? The apostle is the thumb, right? Review, what's the pointer finger, index finger? The prophet, right? The prophet points in the right direction. How about the middle finger? The evangelist, right? How about the ring finger? The pastor, and then the pinky. The teacher, thank you. And all five gifts needs to work together for the church to become the power-packed institution it's meant to be. Now, I'm diving this into more and more as I'm studying for this message. And I realize, wow, just how intricately and how elegantly God designed the church, placing the different gifts in each person, so that one person cannot, cannot empower the church. One person cannot be the solution. He designed that we have to, through mutual submission, all work together. We have to work together for the church to fulfill its full potential. Now, I just want to share for me, one of the most profound mysteries of life is the concept of unity. Okay, unity. Unity in the midst of diversity. The world is trying to answer this weird formula, this weird quest. How do we all be unified and be so different at the same time? And to me, I found the framework of the fivefold ministry to be the explanation, the solution to solve it all. I'm going to give you a, 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 a couple examples to illustrate this point. But first of all, any organization that's divided against itself will fail. Can we agree on that? Jesus himself said, a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Furthermore, before Jesus went to the cross, he had a couple crucial prayers if you listen for his, his, one of his final prayers, he prayed for the church. He prayed for you and I. Do you know what he prayed for? He prayed that the people that come to know him and to follow him will be unified. He specifically prayed for our unity because he understands the power of unity. Now, we all know how important it is to be united, I think, in general, right? But look at the landscape of the church today. Okay, I'm not talking about the church of the world. I'm not even talking about the Church of the United States or even the Church of Crown Point or Northwest Indiana. I'm just talking about look at every local church. It's hard enough for any, just one local church to stay united. Isn't that the truth? I mean, I've been through, I've 
been through many churches. I've seen many churches. I've been a pastor kid my whole entire life. And I've seen how difficult it is for church to keep its unity. Why is that? Why is that? I believe the reason is because we have not truly understood the scope and the power of the fivefold ministry. I got two illustrations, two examples I want to uh, tell you, explain to you, and hopefully give you a mental picture of what this looked like. So back when I was in college, like decades and decades ago, uh, I went to, I attended the University of Richmond, um, Richmond, Virginia. It's a small private school. And during my senior year, a tragedy happened. Okay? So we have a tradition on campus. Uh, at the beginning of every school year, the freshmen attend something called a convocation. If you don't know what it is, don't worry about it. It's the opposite of a graduation. Okay? So you do what a graduation, you go to a service, everyone talks, but you do that at the beginning of the school year instead of at the end, and it's for freshmen instead of seniors. Okay? So after the convocation, part of the tradition is all the guys, all the freshmen men, okay, would wear all their suit and tie and get whatever cool things they wear, and they will all jump into the lake. Okay? I guess this is not what preppy fr- uh, private school people do when they have time. You know, they, they ruin their suits. Uh, while I was a freshman, I didn't do that uh, because I wasn't cool enough to get the memo, and I probably don't want to get my clothes all messed up. But that's what they did. They all jump into the—we the, the, have a man-made lake. They all jump into the lake. Well, the problem was that uh, when they all did that, one young man, when he jumped in, someone else jumped in too quickly, hit him on the head. And this young man ended up drowning. And he was part of the football team, was a tight-knit community, so there was shockwave throughout the campus, heartbrokenness, devastation, everyone was heartbroken, and what we saw was people start to really ask the deeper questions. People were coming to the chapel every night, praying, looking for answers, and what I saw, and I was part of the Christian community in leadership, I was part of the leadership at University Christian Fellowship on campus at the time, and I saw this division within the Christian community. It was really interesting. And there's one camp, one side, that was all about comforting and, and helping and healing. They're like, we don't want to ask any more from anybody. We want to push them. We just want to be there and love them. And then there was the other side who was almost a little giddy, not at the tragedy, but they were giddy at, at the, the outpouring of, of spiritual fervor that we have never, ever seen on campus before. And we've been praying, crying out for God to touch our campus, and now we're kind of are seeing it. People coming to chapel who's never been to chapel. People's, people's coming out looking for answers who's never been out there before. So they were looking to evangelize. They were looking to push. They are looking to challenge and all these different things. And I remember this mental picture. I want you guys to picture this to help you remember this point. I was sitting out of the chapel, and there's two people who are really good friends, both love Jesus, just arguing over each other. I remember seeing that and thinking, I don't get it. How could two people who both love Jesus, I know them both, they're friends of mine, I know they genuinely love Jesus, they genuinely have the best interest in mind for the campus, be so divided. You ever experienced anything like that before? And you're wondering, how does this work? Now, back then, I didn't have the fivefold ministry framework to understand that lens. But looking back now, I realize what's going on here. They both have the same destination, but completely different ways to get there. And we didn't have enough understanding, you know, in college. We thought we knew everything, but we really didn't know anything. We didn't have enough experience, understanding of the fivefold ministry of the Scripture to be able to navigate through that and reach unity. Now, fast forward decades later, two weeks ago, my wife and I had so-called an intense discussion. Um, so just letting you know, my wife 
as I'm studying this, I started to realize more and more of her wiring and my own wiring. So this has been super helpful for me. But my wife, she's wired, uh, she's a prophetic pastor, or she's a pastoral prophet, whatever you want to call it. Whereas I'm more apostolic teacher or teaching, I don't want to call myself an apostle, but you guys know what I mean, right? So in other words, our spiritual uh, gifting slash uh, perception, orientation is like completely at odds with each other, if we don't understand each other. So I came home one day, I had a long day the night before because my kids were up, screaming in the middle of the night, so I was up, I went to work, I had a tough day, I came home, it was one of those days I came home, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and I have like 15 and a half things to do on my to-do list when I get home. So I came home, I said hi to my wife, my kids, kissed them, and my mind's literally already in my office, and my wife said, hey babe, can we chat? It's one of those things like you're moving, your momentum's moving one way, and, you're, and your brain's like, I gotta stay back here. So I sat down at the dinner table. I said, hey, babe, let's talk. So she proceeded to share how the night before I said something that she was upset about. Now, I honestly don't even remember what I said. But uh, the point was she was upset about it. And she said all the right things. She said, you know, I know what you meant. I know you didn't mean to hurt me. Uh, And what you said was right. But I have a hard time letting these negative emotions go. Then she said these words. She said, at least this is what I heard. She said, how do you let go of negative emotions? Now, when someone asks me, just letting you know, when someone asks me a question, it triggers that teacher in me. Oh, you want to ask me a question. Let me go ahead and deliver my dissertation on how to let go of negative emotions. I mean, it's like all of autopilot. I mean, I get into the zone. I start giving her bullet points, three-point sermon, backup plans. I mean, I packaged that whole idea as neatly thing. I mean, you can sell that thing on Amazon. I was so concise in what I was talking about. So after I delivered this great thesis on how you get over negative emotions, she looked at me. She said, yeah, that doesn't apply to me. I don't know what you're talking about, basically. So, you know, as a very mature man of God, very pastoral, I said to her, well, don't ask me a question if you don't want to know the answer anyway. I walked away to my bedroom. Real mature, right? Real proud moment right there. So she walked away from that discussion, not having her needs met, confusion, devastation, hurt, frustrated. And I walked away feeling the same way. Does that sound familiar? And you're like, and like half an hour later, I'm like working on something. I'm like, what the heck just happened? So anyways, later that night, you know, marriage clock, four o'clock, marriage clock, four o'clock. Um, <laughs> later that night, I went back out, put the kids down, kids are in bed, and we're like, okay, we got to rehash this. So this time we approach it a little differently. Instead of speaking, we actually listen to each other, okay. And it turns out that how she's wired, she spoke from her perspective, and how I'm wired, I spoke from my perspective. It turns out our hearts were good. My heart wasn't to hurt her. Her hearts were not to frustrate me. We had the same goal. We just reached that goal differently. See, this is where the five-fold ministry, this, this teaching, laid the, the common script to which we could relate to. That's why it's so helpful. So when my wife said, how do you release negative emotions? What she really mean to say, or what I should have understood is, you help me process this negative emotion. Be pastoral like she's pastoral. 
accept and validate her emotions, empathize with her, process with her like a pastor would. Does that make sense? Because she is pastorally wired, that's what she expects from somebody. Except that I am not pastoral wired. I am teaching wired. I'm apostolic wired. I'm movement wired. I'm like, get the problem solved so we can move on to the next thing. So when that interaction happened, we cross wire. But because of this fivefold teaching, we were able to understand, and I listened to her, and I approached her, I met her where her knees are. And I said, this is, what, this is our conclusion. I said to her, I said, hey, babe, help me. Understand me that I am not wired like you. If you need me to put my pastor hat on, guess what? Tell me. Help me out. And you're like, man, you need her to spell out for you? Yes. That's my weakness. I need my wife to say, hey, babe, I need to chat with you. But I need you to put your pastor hat on right now because I need to process things with you. Okay? And sometimes that's what you need in communication. Okay? Let's be clear about this. But you see these two examples. Okay? How either a lack of understanding or a full understanding of the fivefold ministry can cause either division or unity. Does that make sense? So, how do we have unity in the midst of diversity? Okay, three simple steps. The first step is this. You need to understand yourself. You need to understand your strength. You need to understand your weakness, where you tend to lean. So when someone else bounces out, you're not cursing them. You're saying thank you. First step, you need to understand yourself. Second step, unity. You need to understand those around you, especially your loved ones, especially those who are closest to you. Their strength, their weakness, how they balance you out, okay? Understanding each other is so important. That's why we're going through this series. See, you know why it's so important? If you don't understand your weakness, I mean your strength, it will become your weakness. Does that make sense? If God's giving you a scalpel and you don't understand how sharp that thing is, you're going to cut people instead of using it to heal. That's the importance of understanding. So after we understand ourselves, after we understand each other, the third thing we need to do, we need to submit to one another. The Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 talks about submit to, Paul encourages the church, submit to one another. Out of understandings comes submission. And in this beautiful marriage of understanding and mutual submission, we can come unity, become unified, and then the church will reach its full potential. Can you get a vision of that for me, with me, together? Understanding mutual submission, and then unity, and then the church can truly grow and be powerful. So in light of that, we're going to talk about two of these giftings today. We're going to talk about the prophet and the teacher. Okay? They both fulfill such important roles, not just in the church, but in our society, in your families, in all kinds of institutions. Now you might be thinking this. Well, I'm not really a prophet or prophetic, and I'm not really that strong in teaching. How does this relate to me? I'm going to tell you two reasons why this will relate to you. The first one is this. It doesn't matter if prophet and teacher might not be your lead foot. There is a degree of the prophetic and the teaching gift in all of us. Okay? We all are called to teach. We're all called to teach at least our kids. Right? But the Bible says we're commanded to go make disciples of all nations. So we're all commanded to at least teach somebody some things. And teaching doesn't necessarily mean you're standing in front of a bunch of people lecturing or standing before a whiteboard. There's so many ways you can teach. We're all called to be prophetic to a certain degree. We're all called to hear the voice of God, to experience the presence of God. 
And before you dismiss the teaching and the prophetic gifting too quickly, I want to share a quick example. So I'm looking up training materials uh, on my computer. Uh, I'm trying to create training curriculum for something we're doing in terms of a serve team. And um, I saw people record themselves while they're on the computer, like when they're clicking a mouse and they're talking and doing commentary. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? See that YouTube a lot. But basically people recording their own uh, activities on the computer as part of the tutorial. And I said, man, it'd be so cool if, could do, if we could do that. So I'm thinking it's going to cost some expensive program I got to buy, I got to be some expert and something like that. Well, I Googled it, and two seconds later I realized embedded within my computer, the word computer, Windows 10, I didn't even know it was Windows 10, look it up. Embedded within Windows 10, it gives you the capability to do that for free. Okay? Hit the Windows button and hit G. And the little icon pops up, you hit record, and you record yourself. Okay? See, I use, see, me and technology don't really mess too well. For me, I use my computer to check emails and to type things up. Okay, anybody else with me? Real simple. But when that happened, I was like, I didn't know my computer had that capability. I didn't know what this thing could do. And that moment, I felt the Lord spoke to me. He says, you got to remind people in our audience today. There is gifting in you that you know not of. And then once we start provoking that and start digging at that, just a couple seconds on Google, a couple seconds of the scripture, a couple seconds of teaching, you might realize, man, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know that was in me. Now, the problem is a lot of times we model ourselves after other teachers or prophets. You see someone prophetically speaking, you're like, well, that's not me. That's what my wife had to fight through. But you got to realize, God, why all this so differently? Some people are teacher prophets. Some people are evangelist prophets or apostolic teachers or apostolic pastors. There's so many different combinations, and there's, there's your own wiring. So stop putting yourself in a box and comparing yourself to other people's giftings. As we go through some of these traits, look in your own heart and realize what has God put in your heart. And I believe for many of you, you're going to say, wow, I didn't know I could do that. And that's what we're planning to explore today. The second reason you need to understand the prophet and the teacher, even though that might not be your lead foot or you don't think it's your lead foot, is this. If you don't have a strong prophetic or teaching gifting, rest assured someone around you do have those. Why? Because all five fingers need to work together, right, to form a fist. Okay, if you are not strong, the prophet and the teacher, probably someone living in your house is strong with that. Because God draws you to each other so we can work together. Does that make sense? Maybe one of your kids have that. You need to understand that so what? So you can manipulate them? So you can call out their, their, their faults and judge them and condemn them? No, so you can better serve them. So you can better activate them. So you can better say, hey, I bet you didn't know you could do this. Try this. This has been so fun for me because I was able to activate the prophetic gifting I see in my wife and other people around me because of this teaching. So you guys ready to learn about the prophet and the teacher? I need to see some enthusiasm, right? (laughs) Prophet and teacher, come on, let's get to it. All right, let's talk about the prophet first, okay? And I'll just disclaimer, the prophetic is something always been kind of intimidating for me. So as I'm diving to this, I'm getting more and more excited. I'm like, this is such a powerful gift that God's given us. So what is the prime motivation of the prophet, okay? What is their drive? Their drive is to express the heart of God. Now, what does that mean? Now, Alan Hurst wrote a book. I thought he had a great description, so I'm going to steal from him. He said, 
God made our emotions from his emotions. So whenever we feel deeply, it's because God feels even more deeply. God is an emotional God. Look at the Bible. Look at all the descriptions. It says God's passionate. He's like flames. He's jealous. He's, he's righteous. He's angry. He's joyful. God is full of emotions. And the prophet aims to feel the emotions of God. That's why to the prophetic, emotions is so important. Okay? What are the prime functions of the prophet? The most important or the main function is two. The one of the main functions is to keep us centered, point us in the right direction. You know, a couple months ago, I believe, I talked about how culture is like a moving river, right? If you're just treading water, if you just hang out in the inner tube, chilling, you know, sipping your you know, iced tea, the river is going to take you wherever it goes. That's how culture works, right? I have an even better example this time. Um, I was at the beach house a uh, couple, like a month ago, vacation with my family in Virginia Beach. Our beach house is right on the beach. It's one of those beach houses, right? You walk out of the beach, I mean, walk out of the house, you're at the beach. So I went out of the beach, I went by myself, I went swimming. Just hang out in the ocean, just, you know, whatever. About 15, 20 minutes later, I finally fought my way out of the wave. I got up, I'm walking to my beach house, right? And you know what happened. You look up, you're like, wait, that's not where I live. That's not my house. <laughs> where did everyone go? It looks so different. You look over, the beach house is like way down there. Why is that? It's because un- me not being conscious of what's going on, just playing around, the water has drifted me, Right? The oceans have drifted my orientation, has drifted my compass. So that now when I got out, my true north, or whatever direction it was, it was at a completely different beach house. And that's what culture does to us. When I talk about culture, I'm talking about what you see on TV, what music you listen to, okay, what your friends say, what people value, political laws, everything. All those things tend to drift us. And all of us, Okay, if we're not paying attention, or even when we are paying attention, gets drifted by the culture. But what the prophet has, the special power, the superpower the prophet has, is this spider sense, this tingling going on in their head that says, uh, we are off from the heart of God. They sense that. They sense that there is something off with our, our true north. Some people will consider the prophet as the guardian of truth. I like it better to call the prophet the guardian of the covenant we have with God. The guardian reminds us of our covenant with Jesus. The second main function of the prophet is that they advocate and long for the tangible presence of God. Think about this. In the tangible presence of God is where they experience the emotions of God. So in the presence of God is their sweet spot. That's why they love intercession. They love worship. Because in the presence, they get to fully come, come fully alive because they're experiencing the, the, the emotions of God. And they don't just enjoy it. They want you all to enjoy it. More worship, more intercession, because that's the heart of the prophet, the prophetic. Now, here's a side note here. Because the presence of God is so important to the prophet, you know what else should be so important to the prophet, which I feel like many in our prophetic age or so forth have abandoned? It's the consecration unto God. Now, the word consecration seems like a big, scary word. It's not true. Consecration simply means you're set apart for something. Now, every single one of you is consecrated to a certain degree. If you play sports, you're consecrated to the sports, right? That means when everyone else is hanging out, you're in the gym, right? You're at practice, 
Or everyone else is eating whatever they want. You're like, no, I gotta, I gotta get in shape for this thing. I have consecrated myself for this activity, right? You have consecrated yourself for work. So when someone else who don't have this job is sleeping in, you have to get up in the morning and go to work, right? Consecration simply means you set yourself apart for a specific purpose. Now, what the prophetic call for all of us is that we set ourselves apart for God's purpose. We need to be consecrated. We need to be holy. The Bible talks about, uh, and Jesus says, without pure heart, purity of heart, you cannot see God. And further in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, without holiness, no one will see God. So to the prophet, what they should have is a high degree of consecration in their heart to set, them, set themselves apart for God's purpose so they can hear from the Lord. Now, you might feel a level of, cons- uh, level of prophetic call in your life. There's a prophetic uh, uh, hunger and desire to, to, to long for the presence of God, to hear God's voice, to know God's heart. But maybe that prophetic voice has dulled, has been dampened, and you kind of lost a little bit. I want to encourage you today, the first step you want to do, the first thing you want to do is once again consecrate yourself for God's purpose. Consecrate yourself. And you can hear the voice of God again. What is some characteristic of the prophet? Now the prime example we use for the prophet is John the Baptist. There's many great examples, but he's probably the best one. Okay. Justice issues are super important to the prophetic. Because God cares about justice. The greatest fear of the prophetic is losing God's presence. You know, when Jesus says, you know, cast me not away from thy presence and take not the Holy Spirit from me. You know, I believe uh, King David is an apostolic prophet. Obviously, he's great at building and growing as, a, as an apostolic leader. But he hungers and treasures the presence of God. When prophets are stressed, you know what they do? They retreat to spend more time with God. They want to spend, uh, they need God's presence to nourish them. Now, prophet, check this out. Prophet's job is to point, right? So what is the enemy, uh, for, for you to point to something, you need to be very focused, okay? For example, if you come to me and say, hey, Pastor Andrew, where's the bathroom? Okay. If I say, oh, well, the bathroom is that general area, that, that doesn't really help anybody, right? To point, you have to be very focused, and what is the enemy of focus? The gray. Ambiguity, right? So in general, prophetic types really, really do not like gray. They like black and they like white. Okay? Right and they like wrong. There's many movies that are coming out right now in which the, the hero uh, is ambiguous. They're kind of good and kind of bad. And the prophetic types are like, I can't stand that movie. When Lord of the Rings came out, they loved it. Why? Good guy, bad guy, very clear. Okay? Good guy, bad guy. The prophetic loves clarity. They love black and white. They're very clear when you ask them a question. Okay? I'll contrast the prophetic and the teacher. If you ask a prophetic question, they will tell you the answer, and they will tell you why they're right and you're wrong. But if you ask the teacher, the teacher will say, well, there's three schools of thought, and here's the first school of thought, and here's the evidence behind that. Second school thought and blah, 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 and third school thought. See, by asking a simple question, you can tell if someone's more prophetic or more of a teacher. Prophets are not afraid to call attention to problems, okay? Meaning that they don't mind stirring it up, okay? They don't mind messing with the status quo. Prophets can be very emotional, 
which is not necessarily a bad thing because, again, emotions are so important for them. Prophets are intuitive and less analytical. They can tell you what they feel, but they can't, they might not be able to tell you why they feel that way. Now, this is constantly, used to be a constant point of contention in my household. So my wife would say, yeah, today, just, I just don't feel right today. I feel something's off today. I feel like just, I feel anxiety or I feel something. And I'm like, okay, why did you feel that way? Did the kids act up? Did something bad happen? Did you eat something wrong? Blah, blah, blah. Give me an answer to why. Well, I don't know. I just feel that way. Oh, man, it frustrates me, to, I mean, to, to no ends. I'm like, I need to know the reason why so I can correct it so you can feel better the next day. I'm thinking all these analytical thoughts to it. She's just like, I just feel, I don't know. I just feel that way. Oh, I want to pull my hair out. But now I understand she's just exhibiting her prophetic gifting. Okay, does that make sense? Um... Their intuitions tend to be very accurate, okay? They have foresight and insight. Foresight means they're able to see into the future. Insight meaning they're able to see beneath the surface. So what I've learned a lot about the prophetic through my wife is that when there gets to ministry of points in which I can't make the decision based on simple biblical doctrines, like the Bible really doesn't talk about the specific case, I go to her and I say, hey, babe, how do you feel about this situation? What's your take on this? Okay, for example, um, just a few weeks ago, um, I saw someone in church, and I know they're going through a lot of stuff. Uh, they're burdened with different things. There's a big challenge coming ahead. I know that challenge coming ahead. And there's everything in me to want to go and talk, to, talk them out, talk them through it, coach them, intervene, help them. But then there's a part of me that's like, maybe I should let God do it. You know what I'm saying? That, that conflict you feel sometimes. So I went to my wife. I said, hey, babe, what? Told him the situation, what do you think I should do? And she's like, I think you should leave it alone. You're going to get in God's way. I'm like, okay. I received that. And later when I talked to the person, that's exactly what happened. If I would have intervened, I would have screwed the whole thing up. I would have I robbed this person of the opportunity this person needed to encounter God, to fight through this battle themselves. Does that make sense? I mean, if I wouldn't go help them and encourage them and talk them through it, biblically I would have been fine. But except the word of God says, hey, the prophetic notion, nudging says, hey, let this person fight through this themselves. So, man, I'm learning to lean on my wife more and more and just like, hey, what do you think about this situation? This is how valuable the prophetic is to the body of Christ. And check this out. The prophetic tend to be very creative and like to express themselves artistically, dramatically. Okay? If you think about this, the prophetic, the prophets in the Bible, Daniel, Joseph, where did they give this vision? Through dreams, through vision, through metaphors. Think about how dramatic some prophets are. Uh, think about Hosea. He illust- Hosea marrying a prostitute is, the, is a, an analogy or, or a metaphor to the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. Look how dramatic that example is. Well, the prophet Agabus, remember him? He went to Paul, took off his belt, Okay, tied it around his own arms and his leg just to illustrate what's going to happen to Paul. I would have just been like, Paul, I got a vision. You might get arrested when you go over there, so do you still want to go there? I mean, how intimate. I'm going to go to Ed right now and take off his belt. I mean, just kind of weird, right? Dramatic. But this is how the prophetic express themselves. And we need to understand that. Prophets are so good at telling layer symbolic stories. There are a lot of prophetic seeds that we see in our entertainment industry. And then, that was why I'm going to tie to how the prophetic gifting operates in the marketplace. 
And I want to emphasize, first of all, that every single human being is made in image and likeness of God. Every single one of us. Therefore, there's an investment in each of us, every single one, Christian or non, a seed of this fivefold gifting. Does that make sense? Every single one of us. Now, the truth is, unless this gift has been submitted, okay, to the discipleship of Jesus Christ, the gift won't truly be activated for its intended purpose. And just a reminder, the intended purpose of our gift is not for ourselves. It's to build the church and give glory to God, right? However, in this unactivated, in this shallow form, it can be used to serve all kinds of purpose for ourselves, to manipulate, to destroy, to advocate for business uh, or, or issues that's against God, all these different kinds of things. I already talked about how powerful, expressive gifts the prophetic have given to the entertainment and art industry. Look at it. I mean, I saw the movie, a movie the other day. I saw what movie it was. Oh, um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a cartoon. Um, Enter the Spider-Verse, or some Spider-Man cartoon movie. And in the first, I'm like, it's a cartoon. How good could it be? Man, it was so well done. The imageries, the pictures, the humor. And I was just, I saw that. This is the teacher in me. I saw that. I'm just thinking, God, you gave such tremendous artistic gift to people for them to tell powerful, powerful stories. And here's another side note I want to give. The prophetic in America today has large, in the churches in America today, has largely been ignored. And the reason for that is very simple. It's, it's messy. The prophetic is not easily controlled. It's not easily understood. So most churches in America have kind of leaned towards the pastor and the teacher and kind of nudged out the prophetic. The problem is when we start nudging out the prophetic, meaning like if you have a prophetic gifting, wiring in you, most churches don't, aren't that accepting of you. Because we don't understand how powerful that gifting is. And when we start nudging out that gifting, you know what? The gifting goes to serve some other purpose. And that's what we see today in the entertainment industry, in the music industry. We see shadows of that prophetic gifting attacking the things of God. I think the first thing we need to do, we need to truly celebrate and honor the prophetic gifting. And speaking of someone who's not really wired that way, some, speaking of someone who's kind of a little bit intimidated by that, I'm just saying... We need, to, we need to dig into the prophetic gifting so we can truly embrace it and truly to value it for its intended purpose. Does that make sense? Can we say amen to that? So that's encouragement to all you prophetic people. We need more of you. We need more of your gifting. Uh, I already mentioned the, 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 in, the expression of prophetic gifting in, in, in entertainment or art industry. Um, many people skill in any type of marketing or advocate business has this gifting you find the prophetic gifting in visionaries, in technology, in education. They're able to see into the future. Others have a keen sense of timing and seasons, which would be very helpful for uh, real estate or financial market. The prophetic gift also has a keen interest in whatever justice issue of the day is. Okay? For our era, it could be racism or human rights or environment or stuff like that. Uh, that many find their way into law enforcement, attorney, lobbyists, or working for nonprofit or charities. The prophetic gift is very, very powerful. I just want to once again re- rehearse this. It's very, very powerful. If you have the prophetic gift, I urge you to consecrate yourself for God's purpose, or you end up advocating or sharing or expressing something that's against the things of God. We have to make sure we are centered around God's heart. Hopefully that stir up some of the prophetic in you. 
okay? Many of you in the congregation. Some of the potential pitfalls of the prophetic. You could probably get some of these pitfalls. The prophetic can tend to be too based on experience. Now, experience is powerful. Emotions are powerful. Those are all good things, real things. However, you got to understand we're fallen human beings, surrounded by other fallen human beings. Our experience cannot be the bottom line. The bottom line has to be the word of God. The prophets can be too much focused on the black and white, and they make a complex issue too simple. Just obey God. Boom, done. Well, sometimes it's not that simple. Sometimes there's healing that needs to happen. Sometimes there's understanding that needs to happen. Without balance of, other, of the other gifts, the prophetic can fall into two extremes. And I think Pastor Ronald talked about this last week. Belligerent activism, which means truth without love. Okay? Speaking the truth harshly. Or disengaged from real life. Hey, the world's going to hell anyway, so why am I even engaged? I'm going to go into my monastery, hide out in the mountains. Okay? Dig my bomb shelter. Get my camp food. Call me when Jesus comes back. I mean, I've talked to people who actually lean that way because they're so discouraged at the state of the world. But this is when the evangelist and the apostolic come and grab the prophet. They come on, man, get back in the game. This is what we're called to do. So how do you know if you have a strong prophetic disposition? I'll make it real simple for you. Some traits. Especially look for these in your kids. You take sides very easily. You might be watching a sports game. It might be watching reality TV show, cooking competition, the politics. You end up taking sides really easily, and you divide black and white. Good guy versus the bad guy. Oh, we don't root for him. They're the bad guys. These are the good guys. It's a cooking competition. Are they good and bad? Yes, there is. The prophetic tends to see like that. The word, the dirty word for the prophetic is this word, compromise. They'd rather be called anything else but compromise. Prophetic also have a heightened sensitivity to those, to the character of those around him. Okay? And all these, a lot of these are based on John the Baptist. I'm not referring to a specific passage for the interest of time. But remember when John the Baptist is out preaching and all the Pharisees came and they didn't say a word. Can you imagine that? And he just started calling them out, chewing them out, because he sensed their intention, their hearts. Without saying a word, he knew that these Pharisees came not to learn, not to repent but rather to criticize. So he called them brutal vipers. The prophetic tends to get a sense of the character around them, not even by anything people have done. They just sense it. They would say stuff like, I just wasn't comfortable in that environment. What does that even mean? Did they do something bad? No. Did they say anything bad? No. I just felt it in the environment. The prophetic might also have, tend to have a small group of friends. Again, look at John the Baptist. I mean, outside his disciples... I don't even know they would consider his friends. He hang out in the locusts. He hang out with, you know, in the wilderness. And the main reason why the prophetic, the, the prophet-like people tend to have a small group of friends is because they just don't have a high need for a lot of friends. Their deepest need are met by one person. Who? By God, by Jesus. So they only need a small group of friends. But that small group of friends is so important to them. The prophetic tend to be introspective. I refer back to Psalm 139 when David cries out to God, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. They tend to do introspection in their own heart, check their own motives. Is there any uh, blind spot in me? Is there any wickedness in me? Lord, will you check me? So they can tend to be very humble in terms of their own intentions. But sometimes the prophetic make the mistake to think that just because they love all their blind spots being pointed out, you also like it too. 
They're like, I love being called out, so you must love being called out too. Not necessarily the case. Finally, the prophetic might have very strict personal standards, okay, even at a young age. These standards tend to be even more strict than what the parents or adults might impose on them. I'll give you an example, again, using my wife. At a young age, my wife, just on her own, feels such a dedication to purity. She's just like, I'm not dating anyone. I'm not doing any of that. I'm going to shun. I'm not even, I won't even be friends with guys. I mean, to the extreme, to the point that she was like senior in college. Her mom was like, are you ever going to date anyone ever? Like her parents are like, hey, a little nervous here. Are you going to get married? And she was like, nope, I'm dating the Lord. I mean, almost like legalistic. And, and different people might have different standards and so forth. But when there, if there's a, seem that, that, that very strict regimen, that strict standard you apply to yourself, your child or whoever might tend to be very prophetic. Again, if that is you, we want to pray for you later. So just let that resonate in you. Maybe that's stirring up image of other people you might know. Now, quickly, I'm going to go into the teachers. The prime motivation of the teacher is to express the truth and the wisdom of God. Okay? When they ingest truth, truth is like hot potatoes. Okay? When you have hot potatoes, what do you want to do? You've got to get rid of it, right? When they receive revelation of truth, they can't hold it inside. Unless they teach someone else, okay, they don't feel good. It's like, i got to let this out. That's how teachers respond to revelations and truth. Um, so the prime function is for them to take Scripture, process it into bite-sized nuggets, and then feed the congregation. That's the strength. That's the superpower of, uh, of teachers. Now, this, this, the second prime function of the teacher is this, is they are defenders of legacy. And I say that to mean that teachers don't want truth to die when they die. Does that make sense? They don't want truth to just be as long as they are. They want truth to go on and on. That's why they love writing books, creating traditions, legacies to pass on to generations. So check this out. Prophet, teacher, they both love truth. But they come at it in a very different way. And here's another way I can describe it. The, prof, the teacher gives you basic general principles of truth, okay? But the prophet tells you the here and now and how God feels about it. So, for example, the Bible says, go and make disciples of all nations. Great. We know we're supposed to go, right? But where do you go? Do you go to Mongolia? Do you go to Russia? Do you go to your neighbors? The prophetic gives you an insight on where to go. Another way we can describe the prophet and the teacher is this. Pastor Ron gave me this example, so I'll reference him. That's what teachers do. They reference. So they're not plagiarizing. He said the prophet is like the banks of the river. It forms the parameter where the river should go. I mean, I'm sorry, the teacher forms the parameter. Okay? But the prophet is the water that flows through these banks. So think about it. If you have a river but there's no banks, the river can easily overflow and destroy the surrounding towns. Or it becomes a swamp. That's what happens when you have the prophetic but no parameters, no, the, no word of God to kind of center it. But at the same time, if you have awesome, beautiful architect banks, okay, so clean you can eat off of it, but no water flowing through, what do you get? You get a desert, no life, no relationship, and that's what the prophetic provides. So the prophet and the teacher come together, they hold hand, they understand each other, they submit to one another, and together they're able to present truth to the church. You see how that works? How beautiful that's supposed to come together? Some characteristic of a teacher, 
They want to see truth clearly communicated, understood, and applied. Check out that process. Communicated, understood, and lived out. Now, if there's a break in that, profit, uh, that process, the teacher gets frustrated. So they say stuff like this. Does that make sense? I find myself saying that all the time, to which my wife says, I get it. Stop asking me if it makes sense. I can't help myself because I want to make sure it's understood. That's what a teacher does. Um, the teacher gets frustrated if things get articulated in a confusing manner. Okay, the one of the most frustrating things for a teacher is to see someone articulate awesome truth in a confusing way. They almost want to be like, hey, that's not how you say it. Let me tell you how to say it. Okay, that's what a teacher does. A common question they ask themselves is how do these ideas... Now, first of all, teachers love ideas. A little bit, maybe, a little bit too much obsession with ideas. Kind of speaking for myself. Um, but they always ask how these ideas align with the Bible. Because they love the Word of God. They love the context of God. So this is what happens. Uh, using myself as an example, I will watch some random movie. And out of that movie, they'll be like, yeah, this is really good. I've discussed it afterwards. I'll be like, wow, man, this principle says this is from this in the Bible. And this principle is from this in the Bible. And I just can't help but think that way. And someone, I forgot who was it, uh, just joking with me. It's like every time you go see some random shows, you find three sermons point to, to, to preach from it. But that's how a teacher thinks. He thinks how the, 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 the concept and ideas align with the scripture. When the teacher is stressed, you know, when the prophet is stressed, they retreat to go and be with God, right? When the teacher is stressed, they retreat and they do more research. They study more. They find more information. Don't make fun of us. Um, they tend to be good communicators, either in person or in writing. They tend to be objective and analytical, okay? They also tend to be structural and less emotional. So um, the teacher can easily separate themselves from them emotionally from the situation. Look at it objectively, right? That's why when you ask them a question, they're like, well, I'm going to take my own opinions out of it. I'm going to give you three perspectives. You decide for yourself. Okay, that's what a teacher does. Or even in a discussion with my wife, I, I remove my own emotions from it. And then I'm like, why can't you remove your own emotions from it? No, because the prophet feels and what their emotion is part of the whole situation. So that's where we have to align ourselves. Uh, the prophet likes symmetry. So when a pro- prophetic, look, by how a person pre- prepare their notes, you can tell if they're prophetic or they're a teacher. And Pastor Ron was already talking about that. Now, I've seen some extreme teachers. You guys remember Pastor Kevin Barron? I know his notes. I used to have to change his notes into... Um, into uh, uh, life group lessons. <laughs> and man, talk about structure notes. I mean, that man is a teacher. Structure note. Everything he says, he spells out word by word. So when he sends me his note, it's like 12 pages. But the good thing is everything is so structured, logical, makes sense, symmetry, three points here, three points here, three points here. I mean, that note is so clean, you could eat off of it, okay? Where's the prophets? Like, I don't know. Maybe I'll have some notes, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll use my notes, maybe I won't. This is the difference. The biblical example of, of the stereotype teacher is Paul and Apollos. Think about the book of Romans or Ephesians. He takes these, lot, these super complex theology and logically breaks it down into bite-sized nuggets so that we can digest. So what are some potential shortfalls of a teacher? Okay. I'm not proud to express these things, but they're very accurate. Um, there could be ten to tend to be a lack of urgency. So teachers tend to do this. 
They, they like ideas so much, they could live in the ivory tower of ideas and talk ideas all day. We're just kind of ignoring the practical issues. So I'll be like on my desk, I have a, ta- a ton of tasks I got to do. I got a checklist of 14 things I got to do. And then I got an article come across and talk about a certain idea about religious liberty. And I, my mind would just drift. And I start researching the idea and thinking more of ideas. The next thing you know, it's like 4 o'clock, I'm still on this idea and I haven't done anything done. Because I love ideas, the concept of ideas so much. Now, ideas is important, but you can't stay in the ideas. you got to take those ideas and find the practical application to the real world. Another thing that the teachers can do is that they can replace, uh, they can fall into dry intellectualism, that too. They can reduce Christianity to a mental exercise, do these checkpoints, and then you, you're a good Christian. No, Christianity is a, it's a deep, passionate pursuit of a relationship. You can't, you can't replace that with checkpoints. And the last thing is they can replace, we'll talk about this a little bit, patterns and formulas and principles over relationships. Teachers love formulas and structures and patterns. If you just do this, you can be a good person. You can have a great relationship. Well, try that with your wife. Hey, babe, you should love me right now. Be passionate in love with me. I did four things that you want me to do, right? You know these four things. We agree on these four things. We're good to go. No, that's not how relationship works. Relationships dynamic. It's romantic. It's relational. Relationally engaged. But teachers can very easily fall into those things because those things are comfortable for the teacher. It's comfortable for me to follow structures and pattern. Instead of engaging in the riskiness of being vulnerable and, and emotional in deep relationships. So we often do that with God too. The Pharisees are stereotyped teachers who have reduced their relationship with God to 700 laws. If you do these laws, you're intimate with God. And Jesus came and says, nope, have a relationship with me. Know me. You need some more prophetic into your life. That's why they sent him, John the Baptist, to smash the teachers to smithereens and say, hey, you need more prophetic in your life. Does that mean the teachers have no value? No, I'm not saying that. Do you guys hear the balance here? Teacher and the prophet must come together. I'm wrapping up here. What is a marketplace application for the teachers? Obviously, teachers, educators, but trainers, cultures, philosophers, thinkers, shapers of ideas, and check this out, professional students. Oh, is that on the board? Okay. My sister, if someone will pay her, she will be a professional student all day long. Why? Because teachers love to learn. They love new ideas. They will read all day, study all day. Some of you are like, that's miserable. It's probably the teacher gifting you is not your lead foot. For the teachers, they actually enjoy it. They also find themselves in highly technical jobs, researchers, fact checkers, copywriter, analysts, scientists. Okay? They're good at stuff like that. So how do you know you might have a strong teaching gifting? Okay, first of all, this one I thought was kind of interesting. They could come off, especially when they're young, they could come off as being a little bit cynical because they want to know the authority of the truth behind the situation. They want to fact check it, not necessarily in a negative way. Remember um, the Bible talks about the Berean Jews, how in Acts chapter 17, they would eagerly examine the scripture to see if what Paul said was true. They were fact-checking Paul. But the Bible says they were noble for doing that because they want to know the authority to which this truth comes from. So you might have a child who, who asks a lot of questions, but not just ask a lot of questions. They ask, like, questions which they kind of have no business asking. Like, you, you say, well, why is the sky blue? Well, it's because of this. How do you know that? I just know. Why do I need to do that? Because Dad says so. But Why? 
Because dad says so, but why? You know, my son came up to me the other day, and I think my, te- my son has, my, my oldest son has a lot of teacher in him. He said, why is it that mom, you and mom can go to the kitchen whenever you want, but my sister and I have to ask for permission? I'm like, do I, what? Like, I didn't even answer that, like, because I said so. I mean, that's the first thing I want to come out of my mouth. But then I feel the Holy Spirit said to me, slow down. He's not being disrespectful. He's actually wondering how this whole thing works. So sit down and explain to him. Well, it's because there are dangerous things in the kitchen. There's knives, there's ovens, stoves, and you can, there's dirty things in the kitchen, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying my kitchen's dirty. My wife is not here. <laughs> no, my kitchen is great. It's super clean. Um, but I, I sat down and explained to him the details. I explained to him as if he's an adult. Because the Lord said to me, cultivate his teaching gifting. Don't squander it. Cultivate it. Nourish it. Teachers tend to enjoy studying and researching. No, I know some of you, research and studying is a chore. But to the teachers, they come fully alive. Now, just sharing a little nugget of my own life. Don't use this against me. But, you know, my favorite thing for me to buy, when I buy something, like anything over $20, it's not the buying or the using process. It's the research. I love looking to every brand, every trim, every price, Looking up, what do I really want? I mean, I would spend months researching a $30 toaster because I don't want to buy it. Because once I buy it, I can't research it anymore. It's already there. i got to use it. It's not fun for me anymore. You know the whole analysis leads to paralysis? That happens to me all the time. My wife is like, hey, are we ever going to buy this toaster? What's going on? No, I'm still researching. I'm looking at one more model. No, with the the Internet, you can research things all day long. I'm like, why am I like this? Because I'm a teacher. I'm wired to research and study. So if you love researching and studying, maybe too much, you might have some teacher gifting in you. Teacher might also be fascinated with words. See, teachers understand the power of words. They know that words are building blocks to life, right? Words will build up. Words will tear down. Words will shape culture. They will change nations of directions. Teachers care about the words coming out of their mouth. They will correct themselves. Oh, I meant to say this. Well, I didn't even hear what you said. Well, I heard it. And teachers care about the words that you speak. And they care about the origin and the source and the reference. That's why these deep theologians will study the interpretations of different versions of the Bible. Who wrote all these different versions? Teachers, because they care about the words. If you care about words, you might be a teacher. Teachers can be very upset when they hear the Bible taught out of context, stirs up a deep level of frustration. Teacher can be very objective. Um, I, I, heard, I read this story. I just thought it was such a great illustration of the teacher and the pastor. This lady, she said, you know, when she grew up, her parents fought all the time. They loved each other. They never got divorced or anything like that, but they just fought all the time. Loud fights. And her sister's would be so hurt by that, so wounded by that. By the time they were adults, they left the house very quickly because they want to get away from it. But she said, I just didn't care. I was like, that's their business. I'm going to go upstairs and read. And as she got a little older, she realized her sister had to have a deep pastoral gifting because how pastors are wired. When she, they heard all that fighting and dissension, they felt very deep. They felt it. Whereas the teacher can emotionally remove, remove themselves and be like, I can't be objective. They still love each other. They got along fine. Great. 
See, that's the difference we need to understand about each other. Instead of judging each other and saying, hey, you're too sensitive, but you're not sensitive enough, understand each other's wiring so we can come together. Teachers also can tend to be very, my last point, very disciplined at even a young age. They can set up routines for themselves, regular structure for themselves. I remember at a young age, you no, know, my parents, I grew up in a culture in which everyone studied and got straight SAT, perfect score on SAT, and went to Ivy League. That's not how I was raised at all by my parents. My parents could care less about my grades. I mean, overemphasizing, but they just never pushed me about my grades, going to college, or anything like that. But on my own, for some reason, I set up a studying schedule routine for myself. I remember in elementary school, I realized if I study three days before the test and then two days before and just review a little bit the day before, I will always get great grades on a test. And I just came with that structure, and I just kept doing it all the way to grad school. And looking back, I don't even know how I came up with that. It was just that structure, that routine in me that allowed me to be able to be successful in academics. Not because I was smart or I picked things up quick. In fact, I picked things up really slow. But because of the wiring, the orientation, the gift in me. You hear what I'm saying? To build that structure that allowed me to become successful in test taking. So those things are in you. You might have a teacher gifting or wiring. I'm telling you, the teacher gifting is super powerful. We need teachers today to dive into the Word of God so we can once again speak boldly, truthfully to the world we have. So I want to do a couple different things here. And the first one, I want to reemphasize, without these gifts all coming together, understanding each other, submitting to one another, we're never going to reach the full potential where we're supposed to be. And I'm telling you right now, as your pastor, we need your gifting but we need your gifting to be submitted to each other, which requires character. Gifting and character needs to come together. So first of all, I want all the teachers to stand up. If you have a teacher and gifting in you, go ahead and stand up. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for yourself. I want to ask that, have you asked the Lord to activate the teaching gifting in you? And say, how can we use this teaching gifting for God's glory so that the full potential of the church will be utilized? But not just in the church, in your family, in your homes, in your workplace, to truly use it for God's intended purpose. So let's pray. Let's raise your hands and ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, even right now, I ask that you will fully activate the teacher gifting in us. Lord, that we submit our wisdom, our structure, our understanding, our knowledge to the Word of God. And Lord, let us just see beyond just the four walls of the church, but to our community, to our family, to the institutions that you've called us to provide light and structure and teaching to, coaching, shapers of ideas. And Lord, for those who need it, Lord, shape our character so that we can truly submit to one to another so that church can fully reach unity for your purpose. But even right now, Holy Spirit, ask that you will activate those giftings. Highlight it for our own hearts and our own minds. Remind us that we need to use it. Use it for your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now go ahead and take a seat. I'm going to do the same with the prophetic. If you have a prophetic gifting, prophetic wiring, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Now for the prophetic, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask Miss Chris to come up. I'm going to ask that you pray for the prophetic gifting. 
that the Lord activate it, the Lord use it, consecrate ourselves with God's purpose. Okay, so in the couple of minutes I had there, it was like, okay, God, what do you want me to say? We just thank you, Father, for the the fivefold ministry, for the gifts, and we thank you for expressing to us what two of the gifts were today. And God, we just lift up to you the prophet, the prophetic, and we pray, Father God, that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit. Move in our spirits. Help us to capture what it is that's on your heart. Help us, O oh Lord God, to know what to say, what to do, what to speak, and at the right moment. When do we remain quiet? When do we say? Is it one-on-one? Is it in a group setting? What is your desire? We want your anointing. This is not about us. It's about you, and it's about your heart, and it's about what you desire to have take place. So, Holy Spirit, speak to us deep, deep in our innermost being. Speak to us in our innermost being that we might be able to be your vessels that carry the truth in this package, in this way. And God, we pray that you would help us to not be fearful. And we ask that you would help us to be humble. For without you, we can do nothing. We can speak nothing. We can say nothing. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the precious gifts that you have. I pray that you would now just anoint each one that you have called to the prophetic. Anoint each one that you have called to even stand up as a prophet. Thank you. Thank you. May we use it to bring you glory. Amen. All right, guys, we haven't talked about your gift, your lead foot getting, lead foot gifting. We're going to get to it in the future weeks. Well, next week, I think we'll be talking about the evangelist and the pastor, and then we'll definitely get, get into the apostolic. So have a great Sunday. Marriage class, 4 o'clock. Uh, if you want further prayer for your giftings and activation or anything, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. Have a great Sunday.